and welcome to The Gray Area, where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 78th episode in a weekly series called Design Principles. Here with me is Chris James, former lead level Hi. designer at BioWare, EA, and LucasArts. Welcome. Hey. Hi. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I should tell the listeners, you are the first volunteer who's ever said, hey, I'm a developer, please interview me. And that is amazing, because usually I have to um, chase people down and say, hey, would you like to be on the show? But that was great that you were Facebook friends, and you paid attention. Awesome for you. Oh, yeah, well, no worries. I'm, I'm kind of stuck on a horse ranch right now, so um, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to do anything. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, this, 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 I just thought this was a pretty cool opportunity and something fun to do, so I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, excellent. I hope it is going to be fun. Well, last week's episode was a discussion with Melissa Gallagher, Deanna Rossi, and Monica Specka from Genesis RPG. Please visit www.genesis.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic and to tell me your story. Today's Wednesday, August 15th, and we're going to meet Chris, talk about level design, bioware, and jobs in the industry. So... Let's start with news of the week. News of the week I'm going to name for you and we can talk about. I think last week we all know, yes, that Blizzard had a security breach uh, that compromised a significant amount of users' Battle.net account details. And they warned us to change our passwords. And if you haven't acquired an authenticator by now, you really should be hacked. Because there are the free apps. So... Um, it turns out this Thursday that the passwords were protected by an encryption scheme and the company said was extremely difficult to crack. So you might not be as vulnerable as you thought, but this should not be your excuse to not change your password. You definitely should do that because I know some people that were actually hacked. So do you have any thoughts? Yeah, it, it seems like that's kind of like happening a lot lately. And I mean, I'm not particularly too sure why hackers are like focusing on game developers, maybe because it's fun. Um, I don't know if it's particularly any hate towards Blizzard. Maybe there is, but, um, it's, it is simple. Like, it seems like every week it's like, I need to change all of my passwords all over again. And it's, it, it's, if anything, it's just annoying for us users. I mean, I don't know what, you know, the messaging is like, haha, we've got all your passwords, Blizzard, or, you know, credit information of all of your, uh, of every, of all of your, uh, clients, but, I, I just kind of don't, I don't actually see the point, but other than it's just kind of an annoyance, but like you were saying, like the passwords are incredibly well encrypted anyway. So, I mean, for them to actually go to any particular person and try and figure that information out, I'm like, you, you should change your password, but it's probably highly unlikely you, you uh, will get hacked. But an authenticator is a really good way to go. Absolutely. I mean, you could do it on your iPhone or you could get the little dongle that goes off of your keychain or whatever it is you know that that works for you but you know it's and it's not that hard to do this is true it seems like to me there's kind of two versions of hackers the version <laughs> call them the um philanthropic hacker the one who does it because they want to just showcase the weaknesses so they you know they do it just to say hey this was vulnerable and i just wanted to let you know by destroying your life and then the second yeah. set is the, I want to steal all of your 
credit cards and like really do it for the money. So I don't know which kind of hacker this is, but you would think maybe gaming companies are targeted because they have such a huge user base that they can get a lot of people. I don't know. Yeah, and that, that could be very much well it. I mean, internet security is going to be su- is such a huge thing. I've been watching lots of TED Talks on this um, over the past couple of years. And I mean, going into the future, like where we're heading into cloud-based and where everything is just going online, um, even Facebook, right, has a lot of, you know, uh, confidential and personal information. Like, how do we how do we keep all of this stuff secure and stuff that we don't want to get loose, like our credit card information or credit reports or whatever it is, mm-hmm. to to those who will maliciously use it, right? And I think you're right. I think when it comes down to it, it's either the hackers are having fun uh, and being, you know, uh, just kind of like poking at the system to find out, you know, who can hack in first type of idea, or they're being malicious and they really are part of uh, maybe a crime syndicate or whatever it is uh, to, to get a whole bunch of, you know, essentially criminals and, and, and money. So I don't know why they would target gaming people, but it's it, it does kind of suck because it seems like everything, right? First, you know, Sony, then Blizzard, then this, then that. You know, LinkedIn was hacked. It's like, come on. <laughs> no, no, please steal my resume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, more news. I'm going to steal from Ars Technica here for this one and quote Kyle Orland. Valve announced that it will be expanding its popular Steam digital game distribution service, yay, for PC and Mac to include a wide range of non-gaming software starting September 5th, so very soon. Um, besides offering software makers a built-in audience of 40 million gamers, Valve stressed the announcement that non-gaming software on the service uh, would be able to take advantage of Steamworks features. And what they're saying is that these can be productivity programs, um, things like uh, animation, modeling, audio production, design and illustration, photo editing, things of that nature. So they're not gaming related, but they're extra things on Steam. And uh, that this, you will be able to submit software for consideration via Steam Greenlight, which has recently uh, come out. And it will let Steam users vote on what will appear on the service. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah, I, I think what they're trying to do is take a look at what the App Store did, you know, uh, for, for for the Mac and, and essentially go, oh, wow, you can make a lot of money off of non-gaming products. <laughs> go figure. <laughs> and try and, and, and try and tap into that market. Now, they could be incredibly successful, although the only thing that Microsoft and Apple do have, you know, up and beyond uh, Valve is that, well, this comes installed with every operating machine, right? Whereas in Steam doesn't. And Steam is, is very niche to specifically gamers. But I think it's a really good step for them to try and break into a market of non-gamers and then say, oh, by the way, even though we've got all these apps that you, you're interested in, we also have games. And people go, you have games? And because like, Going into the future, who knows what's going to happen with platforming, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, consoles or handheld or anything. Like, it's so wide out there. I mean, even a Kickstarter is coming out with a $100 console. Like, wow. Um, and it's really going to be all about software, which is, you know, Microsoft has said forever, and, and so has Apple to degrees, that uh, it is all about software. And Valve is, you know, simply, strictly software. So that's what they're trying to tap into. Instead of just going for entertainment, but you know, application data, hopefully tap into, you know, businesses and people who really do care because they have a better service that they're providing than, say, maybe Apple or Microsoft, I don't know, and uh, hopefully, you know, pick up on that audience. And in the meantime, becoming more of a valid international or platform for uh, for us gamers that Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony could never get together and do themselves because of, you know, whatever their corporate reasons. I'm kind of surprised uh, that they're 
putting so much effort into this particular direction. I guess I figured with the EULA passing, letting uh, third parties basically resell your games, that they would be working on some sort of a specialized store so that you could uh, have a means to do that. And I haven't really heard anything from them based on that. I don't know if it's something that's going to take a long time to go through or uh, if they're going to be interested in being one of those third-party uh, license resellers of, of used games. But you'd think, you know, so many people have... I have a million Steam games I don't use. <laughs> Played three times yeah. and said, mm, not really. So yeah, they're already there. You would think it would be easy enough to to figure something like that out, but I haven't heard any info. Yeah, no, I mean, and they, they you know, in, in all possibility is they're working on it anyways right now, right? I mean, the big problem when it comes to, to you know, trading in games is that the developer or the producer for the, for the production company gets absolutely no money from those resales, right? When you bring your game in to trade it into GameStop and stuff, sure, it's you know, helping you out because you're not paying extra cash for a $60 game, which we all understand. But when those companies go and resell that game, the, the, the creators get zero profit, nothing. Right. And, you know, maybe for like an incredibly large multi, multi, multi million dollar game, fine, they're losing millions. But those small developers who are just getting by are really getting super screwed. Right. So if you're taking a, a service like like you were saying, like a, like on um, on Steam and reselling it that way, then there a percentage could get kicked back to the, to the publisher and the developers, which would be really great, especially for indies. So and it could be really easy to do that. And, uh, they might have not have announced it, but I can't see them not taking that into heavy consideration and working on something in the background, business-wise, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to see a trading option. And there are plenty of games that my friends yeah. have I'd like to play and vice versa. Um, you yeah. know, I wonder if they could work something like that out. But like, like you're saying, Valve with uh, Greenlight and some of the things seems like they are trying to get people that, like the indie companies that do the smaller games and you know, their own software to be able to have a place to at least put that, which is cool. Yeah. And I mean, Steam is great right now anyways, because I can sign, I can buy a new computer, sign in and still get all of my games and not have to worry about, you know, I don't have to worry about like getting a brand new console and not playing my old games on it. Right. Yeah. Um, that's never really going to be a problem anymore. So, you know, they, they've definitely got a lot of stuff figured out, but um yeah. How many Mass Effect 1 and 2 save files have I lost transferring them from computer to computer? <laughs> Yay for Steam. No. Nope. Ever having to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Seriously. It's really good. Speaking of Mass Effect, <laughs> Bioware is releasing its new single player DLC for Mass Effect 3 called Leviathan on Xbox 360, yep. August 28th, PS3, August 29th, and never that I can see for the PC. I'm sure it'll come out. But what is up with that? Oh, Skyrim and and Bioware. <laughs> what have you done? <sighs> yeah, it, it's it's yeah it's 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 funny because like it's easy for you know when when you're the audience or you're that you're a game player to to just be like what are you doing? This makes no sense. But you know from the developer's perspective, it's like well yeah I mean this is what we have to do for X and Y reasons. Um, now I don't particularly know why they're not putting it out on PC. I, I, even if I knew, I, I probably couldn't say anything. Mm. But um, you know, it, it is. I'm sure there's some pretty really good reason as to to why. Um, 
Yeah, but yeah, it does kind of suck for the PC users. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Spoilers for Leviathan that I've been able to ferret out. Who knows if they're accurate or not? Um, that Leviathan is a Reaper killer, possibly a defector of the actual Reapers. And will and this uh, DLC will involve a trip to another research site, and you'll meet Dr. Anne Bryson. And so, hmm, that sounds interesting. I I want to play. I love I love the single player game, and I still play the co op. But because I have a PC, I won't be playing. All right. So. Uh, it'll come eventually. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure there's like exclusivity reasons why. I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure there will after the entire game's been revealed. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's start with you. News of the week. Oh. What is going on with you? What's your news of the week? What's my news of the week? Yeah. Oh man. That's I don't, I don't I don't know if I have any news of the week. <laughs> it doesn't um, have to be like earth shattering. News of the week is I've just been really enjoying British Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> have you just been there? Well, I'm I'm here temporarily. I'm actually staying with uh, some family here in uh, Langley, British Columbia. Okay. Um, and actually, in the next couple of days, I'm actually going to be driving across Canada to back to Thunder Bay in my my home city because I'm I'm moving. I'm I'm making a very big move. Um, I haven't announced, I haven't made public as to where I'm going, but I've signed on with a new person, uh, a new company, and I'm incredibly excited. And it's, let's just say, it's not Kansas. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm incredibly excited for the opportunity and to work with these folks. They're they are pretty very, you know, I, I'd say very well known in the industry. Um, great reputation. They, Really excellent games, and I'm 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 very lucky and very excited to be working with them in the future. Well, congratulations! That's really good news. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but I don't know if there's anything particular in terms of news. I mean, uh, yeah. You can be enjoying yeah, your downtime. Yeah. It's allowed. Yeah. No. During during my downtime, I've actually just been enjoying. Um, not really paying too much attention, honestly. <laughs> All right. Are you playing anything right now? Any games? Um, actually, I just finished Rage um, on the 360. Mm. I picked it up. Um, I had a discount, not used, but I had a discount at a store. Um, and because I've been really, really interested in the ID Tech Five engine, I uh, I think what they are doing over at it is just unbelievable. And I, I'm always really, really impressed, especially tech wise. And uh, the game looks absolutely beautiful. I mean, um. I, I can understand maybe why it didn't really hit the audience in the way that they were intending, but um, uh, I played it from beginning to end, and every time I went to a new building or looked outside, it was just my jaw dropped on the floor. The game is absolutely gorgeous, and the character animations and the voice acting are just over-the-top production-wise. Um, so that um, I've been playing a lot of. I haven't played Rage. What's the main storyline? What's the premise? Uh, the main storyline of Rage is um, that you you it, it's it's kind of like Fallout in a way where you're in a vault and you wake up and this guy who is played by um, John Goodman um, comes up and he picks you up in a buggy and he drives you away and then it kind of becomes Skyrim in a way in that regard, but. Um, and the storyline is just simply uh, two factions against each other: the uh, the um, uh, the re uh, the rebellion versus the authority. And uh, you happen to get picked up by the uh, by the rebels before uh, the the policeman came. 
and uh, you just basically it's it's not really open world, and then you get to choose which side you want to be on. But uh, you just kind of go along the storyline of helping out the rebellion to, in a way that only you can because you're from the vault, then they're not. So, mm. yeah. Okay. Well, I enjoyed the other games that it sounds similar to, so maybe I have to check that out. Cool. Yeah, I mean the weapons are fantastic. Again, the art is great, and um, the driving around is really good. Um, the the only thing I, I feel like it kind of felt short on was it was just like a a normal shooter. Like the AI was fantastic too. Like the AI and their animations and how they gripped onto the world. Like there's so many things that they did right, but when it kind of like came down to the actual like core core gameplay or my motivation going forward i never felt empathetic or sympathetic as to the cause or as to why i needed to go forward or um it was pretty much well just like every shooter you point click and kill Mm -hmm. and you very pretty in different ways of killing but it was really not too much more outside of that they had a couple very minor gameplay things like use electro bolt on this yellow thing to open up gate but they never really went farther than the basic kind of gating mechanisms okay so kind of when it got to the end of the game, I'm just like, huh. Hmm. Well, it was very pretty. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. So not enough story-driven to actually uh, keep your interest. Yeah, it, it's a game that has a lot of great dialogue, um, really interesting characters um, in terms of, um, again, the, the, the animations and the voice acting, but in terms of like how it kind of drove me through the story, See, the thing with games is we have this great opportunity to allow the player to have agency and and move the story themselves across versus, you know, a traditional medium where you reset you, you know, in, in front of a huge screen, give you some popcorn, and we bring you along the story by telling it to you or by various other means. But they, they kind of took a very traditional storytelling method in the game that I felt really didn't, it, it could have been thought of a little bit more from a Bioshock perspective where they're using the world to tell the story a bit more or they're making the player move it forward more by by putting them in a situation where you're not saying, go do this, bring this back to me, but you, you, you know, that you're actually figuring it out yourself as you go along. And I, I feel like there's a... Um, I, I feel like that's kind of where I think a lot of people may have been disenchanted with the uh, with the game, but... Do you feel like uh, your decisions affected the game, or that you weren't really like a core element? It was just going to happen as it was. It was just, it was just like again, just a regular shooter for me. And I, I got to the end and went, "Wow, that was actually it was really cool." Like for you know, I, you know, even though I bought it at a discount price, I'm like, "Wow, it was still like a very, very interesting in, in a lot of regards." So I, I have nothing but props for the team for for pushing that thing out. I just feel like they could have, um, and I know there's reasons why. I mean, and I can even guess as to the development uh, and production problems around, you know, having the player choose which faction they want to, you know, go inside with. But um, I just feel like that was such a core part of the story. They could have probably gone forward more with that concept, but it is what it is. Okay. Well, let's move to level design. Um, You are a lead level designer. Would you explain what that is and I guess a little bit about your job? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I was leading on, on one project, Spider-Man Edge of Time, which, uh, was an incredibly interesting project because it was, it was a very fast project. Uh, I don't know if I can specify, like, specify, like, timelines or anything like that. Hmm. Um, 
But um, only available for PlayStation and Xbox. I'm sorry, I'm just on this tirade now. Continue. No, it is. But honestly, every every game I've ever worked on had a console, you know, on my development console on my desk. I've I've always had at least an Xbox 360 dev kit on my on my desk, if that plus a PlayStation 3 test kit, so that I can test on both consoles at all time. But I've never actually released a PC only game, so. Are Sorry most of that. them created uh, directly for Xbox and then ported over, or, or any games created for a PC and ported? I wasn't sure what the main like creation tool was. No, um, a lot of the tools that I've used, anyways, um, are built whether they're pr- proprietary or not. So, like, I, I, you know, Army of Two is on with was with Unreal Three, um, uh, Lucas Arts. Um, Edge of Time, those were both proprietary. Uh, most other things I've, I've done were just internal engines. But you always, the, the engines, because they're made in, in-house, they're made so that when you build the game, it works on both platforms. You, you have to do separate builds, like you have to choose Xbox or, or PS3. But it's, no, you're not making for one console and porting it over or anything like that. Um, you're building, you're building, you're building it very specifically for, um, for platforms, next-gen platforms, quote-unquote, right? Um, even actually, at a time, um, when we were building the game, we had the option of porting, of, of um, doing, uh, like, a 3DS and a Wii build at the same time as well. Like, the, the, the internal attack of Beanox is really, really cool, um, for, uh, especially for those who are just really kind of nerdy about, um, about making builds. Um, but, you know, very, there isn't, most of the reasons why games don't come out on PC when they're made for a console, primarily it's because of controls. Um, console games aren't really made for a keyboard and mouse. They're made for a controller. And they're pretty, like, the, the schematics for the 360 and the PS controller and the Wii controller even are very specific. And they're, they're very well-tuned for that type of gameplay. So when you put it in your hand, it feels right. Then if you go to a PC, you have to make it work for keyboard and mouse because you're not guaranteeing that the player is going to be using a 360 controller or a PS3 controller or even a branded name controller, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an art in itself. I've had plenty of games that were designed for a console and brought over that really weren't given a lot of thought and uh, gets very frustrating for the user. I thought yeah. Assassin's Creed, um, I think, 2 was one of those. I just got really frustrated after a while and said, this is too complicated for a PC. I need to go play it on the console. Yeah, and that's 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 a very valid point. Like, if you think of, think of the original shooters back in the day, right, where you know you're looking at oh hell, like you know N64 and PlayStation One, and you get these first person shooters, and they felt wrong because they just didn't really understand the difference of of making a first person shooter control scheme between a PC and a console because it's first person shooter, right? Goldeneye was really one of the first ones to get it right, and then Halo picked up on that, improved on it, and did this amazing, you know, uh, v- very technical soft lock of the enemies as you're kind of like moving around to help the players out. All of a sudden, first-person shooters became better, and it no longer became about precision, which, oh my god, if you don't have precision in first-person shooters, it's a bad first-person shooter, right? Mm. Especially back in the Counter-Strike days, which, you know, fair enough for those kind of games, but if you take a look at Halo, you don't really need it. It's not part of the fun of getting headshots. Yes, it's it, it's it's it, it's a part of the gameplay, but it's not really the center focus. The center focus is point at that dude that's moving really fast and shooting at you and kill him. Um, yes. Welcome to Borderlands 2 with best friend mode. Just generally yeah. close enough. <laughs> close enough. 
Exactly, you know, and that that's where that those, those thirty seconds of, of of fun, you know, as, as Jamie kind of uh, put it, is where that's where it was concentrated on, right? Like, do I want to shoot with my plasma rifle or my you know pistol that I can zoom in with my magnum <laughs> pistol, or do I want to you know like launch off a shotgun? <laughs> or yeah, you have like two weapons to choose from, which actually have very different ways on how they. Uh, they work and how they hit the character, right? In terms of delays or power, like charging and all these things. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like, do you want to use precision with a grenade? Like, they, they did a really great job at just figuring out, try and hit the guy versus hit him in the foot or in the leg or in the shoulder or in the head, which in the end, you're hitting the guy, you know, he's going to die. <laughs> so, but, uh, but I mean, the point being, like, because of those differences, like, even in a first-person shooter, that when you're translating a game from a console to a PC, it just becomes really, really hard. To, to do that um, from a control perspective. I can see that. Okay, I sidetracked you. Back yeah. to level design. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, back to level design. So, anyways, um, well, you know, basically level design is you're, you're kind of figuring out you're the you're you're kind of the end of the of the line in a way, right? Where you you think of the architecture. I mean, it depends on how the, every studio kind of does level design a little differently. Um, but the, the main idea is you have one person who's in control of the architecture of the world in terms of the, the building blocks, right? What are your metrics and, uh, how high are things and how are they, how are they placed? What is the camera? When you put an enemy down, how do they move through the space? W- what's the physical space area? Then you've got the, um, the technical side of things. So writing a script that manages your combat. So when you're brute, or your big dude is halfway through his health, then through this wall, another one bashes through creating an open gate for you, but now you have like two guys that you need to fight. So trying to figure out what that kind of event is. And also too, um, depending again on the studio, you get narration uh, on top of this. So you have to think of what is the story and what is uh, trying to be told here and how does the events that the player is encountering uh, why is that meaningful? Why are they here? And what are their, what are their, what is their objective? And then how do they know what that is? And where do they need to go? Like all of these really fundamental questions. And by working with all the departments on a team, so, you know, art, VFX, your audio, your, um, combat, you know, designers, your programmers, producers, everybody, you're kind of like the central force of what is going in the game and why is it meaningful? Mm-hmm. It seems um, to me this is where the bugs would live. It would be yeah. difficult because you would probably be the one who encounters the majority of those. Yeah, I would say that I would say that's mostly right. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of bugs, right? I mean, you can get latency bugs, so then you go to the networking programmer, you've got gameplay bugs, so or uh, physics bugs like why is that character halfway through yeah. the wall jittering? Like why that's- am I stuck in this rock in the secret world? I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, we've got physics programmers to figure that out. I mean, and it can also be a level designer, too, of maybe the uh, collision wasn't done correctly. But then you also have the artists who, you know, they go in, they do these amazing pieces of art, put it in. And they're also generally um, uh, 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 also do collisions. It depends on the company, but when an, art, when an artist, you know, creates their piece, they'll create the simplified collision for it and put it in. And maybe it's too simple. Maybe it doesn't really work correctly with 
whatever the physics are of the game. Like, if you take a look at a game like Force Unleashed, where you can pick up anything and throw it around like a huge physics uh, demo, mm -hmm. um, you need to be very tight with your physics um, and in all degrees, you know, not just on your floor, but on your walls and your ceilings. So that becomes like a really kind of a finicky kind of game to, to bug fix. But then you've got, yeah, you've got the, okay, you've killed this guy. Why isn't this thing popping up on my screen? I've completed this mission. Damn you, level designer! That's what it kind of comes down to. <laughs> okay. So explain so to me what collision is, because I don't understand that term. I can guess, but... you just Oh, sure, collision. I mean, collision is basically... Um, well, there's two kinds of... Um, again, de depending on, on how the tech works. But generally, there's two files that go into an engine, that or into a level. You've got um, your visual file, and it's named in very different ways for, for different companies. But you've got the visual file, so that's all of the, the very pretty art, the, the, the leaves and the trees, the tree itself all of these different things. And that ha encompasses your LODs. So when you're up really close to something, you get the best and amazing detail. Well, if you're going to be like 40 meters off to, you know, north or 80 meters, you still want to see that mountain, but you don't need these really high-res textures loaded. The blur of distance, okay. Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. So the farther away you go, um, you get a level of detail zero, which is right up on your face. Level of detail one, two, three. Generally, it goes up to three, depending on the system. Um, but yeah, so you've got a file that actually encompasses all of those and it manages that information. So it loads, it manages loading different textures or uh, different uh, rasterizations and, uh, uh, sizes of textures and all of the art stuff. And then there's another file usually called the HKX files. And that's, um, that's if you're using Havoc or, you know, if you're using an, another physics engine or a physics, physics file. And that's the very, very, very simple, like, box of um, your very like very simple geometry which the computer when you take a ball and you throw it let's say into a closet right and your closet going to have a lot of things it's going to have clothes it's going to have books it's going to have all these textures all these little models but if you were to say take all of that as collision and you throw it against say uh, a pile of rumbling books all of a sudden it has to calculate how is the ball going to fall? What's going to happen? All these, like all of these little, little, little small problems that it has to solve for. When you just go, screw it. It doesn't matter. It's just going to be one big box of collision. And when you hit, when you hit it against the closet, it's just going to bounce back off. Nothing's going to get disturbed. And all of a sudden you're mil like thousands of collision calls to the, to the processor comes to one where it's just, you know, Ball hits against the wall and you move off. So you've got very simple collision that defines the underlying world everywhere that um, helps the uh, physics processor or the, the, the physics processing to really get to the solution fast um, so you don't have latency or whatever it is. Well, and then about something like Skyrim that has a cups and plates and tiny little things you can pick up that all knock other things off and whatnot. Yeah. Well, so when you walk into a room like that, what you'll notice is that everything's in a solid state, is kind of what we call it, or a settled state. So the the physics aren't being processed on everything in that room, right? Mm -hmm. so once you bump into something or you pick something up, all of a sudden it activates, it changes the physics from uh, essentially uh, static or uh, stationary to dynamic. So when you throw it around, now all of a sudden the physics are being calculated for that one object, but nothing else in the room. Unless maybe it hits another object, wakes up that object, and then those two things are being processed. Because if you're to initially walk into that room and everything all of a sudden is being uh, calculated, though some games and some engines might do 
fine with that. Generally, you're just using all of this um, data or you're doing all these calculations for no reason. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, for you as the game player, you don't care really. You, you know, you walk into a room, a bunch of things you can pick up, but you don't care if they're moving. You just want to go find that book that's going to give you, you pick it up, it's going to give you the plus, plus one to archery and woohoo, you know, everything. Okay, I can sell that for 10 copper. Screw it. I'm not picking up that book, you know? Right. Okay. Neat. Go back to your level design. I just, I wanted to. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's fine. I mean, I, I love talking about this stuff. Um, and, but that, that's, that's basically it, right? When it comes to the end of the game, and, you know, that's when, when you're doing your bug fixing, um, as much as everybody is all, uh, you know, they're all, they've all got their cues of things that they're fixing in, uh, in dev track or whatever the, the bug fixing, the, the bug tracking system is that they're using. Uh, every, all, what's being reviewed are the levels, right? It's the focus of the levels. So it's the lead level designer or the level designer themselves or the creative director or somebody who stands up in front of the team and is playing the game or the producer. Um, playing the game and describing what's going on during the daily scrum uh, uh, scrum meetings or however production works on that particularly t- particular team, um, but like that's the end all. Like that's the focus, right? Because when you, as the player, you click campaign mode, you see this really cool cinematic, which is done by this amazing team, and then you get into the game. And at that point, everything is what comes together for that experience right that first 10 minute experience all the way to the end of the six or eight or 20 hour game but that's all crafted that experience by the level designer right and i'm not saying there's the sole person for that for that experience because it you know it comes all together from what the artists have done and what the game systems are and how solid they are but you know in the end when it comes to that narrative and that story it's it's very much well on the level designer's shoulder at the end of the game to make sure that that is solid and that they communicate that correctly. So say something's flickering, uh, you get Z fighting or Z fighting, depending if you're Canadian or American. <laughs> um, so that, and that's that flickering. You know when you look at maybe a wall and you see it flicker? Mm-hmm. It's called Z fighting. Really? You know, if uh, as QA could pick that up, but if, if the level designer is playing it through it and sees that, you know, they're the ones that should, you know, go over to the, the artist or maybe open up the editor and find out what's going on, seeing maybe there's two overlapping... Uh, walls, same wall being, you know, uh, rendered twice and like fix those problems or at least communicate what those problems are. And, uh, and just kind of be that person with all the tendrils out to all the different departments. So as things come in, it's not that they're particularly just testing it, but they're making sure that it really works with the experience and it's crafting that narrative that the player really is going to engage in. Well, that, uh, sounds like quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, you've been, in my research, you've been with EA, uh, LucasArts, and I want to say Binox, is that correct? How do you pronounce that? Binox? Yeah. Say it again? Binox. Binox. And Bioware, in that order in the last few years. And I know three of those. But yeah. tell me about uh, Binox and why that move when the others seem so, so much more well-known. What do they do? What is Binox? Well, okay, so Binox is, is really kind of... Uh, in a way, boutique studio that um, uh, that's in Villeneuve, Quebec, so in, in Quebec City, and uh, they're a really great group of guys over there, um, and I, I love my time with them. But at the end of uh, the Force Unleashed two, um, yeah, it, it wasn't particularly privately known that they did a major layoff, and so a, n- a number of us from the Force Unleashed two team 
had to find work. And having been in San Francisco for three years, amazing city, by the way. I, I loved my three years there. I kind of really wanted to come back to Canada and, um, and I was looking for opportunities back in Canada and, uh, I have a, I had a recruiter, have a recruiter friend, uh, at Activision and she's like, well, what about this lead level design position in, at Vinox in Quebec City? So I kind of thought about it and I actually asked a few people I'd worked with at, at, at LucasArts, hey, do you think this would be a good move for me? And they're like, oh, give it a try. Yeah, I think it'd be great. A great move for you. So I'm like, okay, all right. I, I applied and I talked to the, the creative director and the other lead level designer who's there. And um, it went around, it went really well, but what really kind of brought me in was I was working on Spider-Man, and I thought that was really cool um, of an opportunity because having worked on uh, a new IP, which is Army of Two, and um, uh, a very well-known franchise, which is uh, uh, definitely and uh, in Indiana Jones, it was kind of really interesting. I wanted to get the opportunity to work on a property that I I knew really well. And uh, was excited for, but to kind of see what that whole process was like, and it was actually really, really cool. Uh, Activision has a great relationship with Marvel, and um, and uh, um, and uh, it was just just this really great opportunity to to try something totally brand new. And I've always wanted to work on my French, and uh, <laughs> like have half half French, you know, here in Canada, like bloodline wise. So I really wanted to pick that up. So. Um, although to the cringe, I'm sure a few of the guys there spoke English quite a bit because it was a pretty insane project in terms of the deadlines. But, um, but I picked up a heck of a lot. And, um, you know, after the year of, of, of living there, I have nothing but respect for the guys. And they just recently released the amazing Spider-Man video game. And my hat's off. It's, it's a really cool project. So, uh, what was it like working on Marvel? Something so, uh, so famous, basically. And people have so many, attachments you know emotionally to anything spider-man did you get a lot of reaction when it time came out um well uh, when it kind of came out i had moved on um i had an opportunity to work at bioware and i, I kind of took it um so i never really got a lot of the, the the end reactions um i mean i looked on metacritic and i saw the you know the, the that um but, you know, it, it's it's really interesting when it comes, and it just opens up this whole discussion about subjectivity of entertainment and what do people enjoy or not. Um, but during the production, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, so we have this really great idea, and then Marvel would come back with this really, you know, interesting reason as to how it doesn't fit in the lore, or Peter David, who's uh, who was the writer, one of the writers, on, or the main writer of the project, um, he would just come up with like these really, in, to me, insane reasons as to why Spider-Man can't do this or why it doesn't fit within the lore. But man, those guys are bang on. Like they know what they are doing when it comes to uh, that that franchise and what the audience is really looking for from a Spider-Man game. So uh, it was it was very educational, but it was never really a major problem. They were really actually very good to work with and. Um, it was a. Uh, it was again really interesting not being able to just go over to the next building, and be like, "Hey, so we've got this question about what we'd like to do with uh, Star Destroyer." <laughs> Couldn't just go to the next building and ask that question, but it still worked really well, and and especially for um, uh, especially for that project, we were uh, we we're very fortunate that it uh, uh, that it went so smoothly. When you moved to Bioware, it says that you worked on a secret project. Is that something you can talk about at this point, or is it still something that uh, might come out and you can't discuss? 
No, I can't talk about it. Um, as much as I, as as much as I would like to, um, I think the guys there have a really great thing going on, um, and uh, I really can't wait to play it. But I I, I can't say what it is. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Okay. Speaking of uh, the move to Bioware, what is the average? I don't want to say longevity, but it seems like level designers um, kind of move from company to company. Um, maybe at the ed- end of a game. Do you end up, as a level designer, staying with the company for a long period of time and moving um, through the games that they develop? Or does you, do you kind of stick with one game, and then when that finishes, you move on to a different company? What is that like? Um, it, it is kind of weird, because you get basically a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, right? Um, you know, at, 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 at LucasArts, um, if they didn't have the layoff, I probably would still be there. I mean, I think 1313 looks incredible, and I mean, I would love to have been on that project, but, um, you know... Things are the way they are, um, you know. And there's there's some people that are, have been with the studio since it opened, or you know, five, ten years, or uh, however that that works. I mean, whenever I'm brought into a studio, it's never for contract. Like it's always it's always pretty much well just full time. Um, for me, in my instance, I know there's other people that that don't have that particular lifestyle. Um, but you know, you get to the end of the project, and then you kind of sit back and you kind of evaluate, you know, what you want in life, what you want in your career, and. And then you look at, maybe possibly you look at opportunities or, you know, try to figure out what you want in life, you know, the big question mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, it's, um, yeah, I'm just, uh, it's the best way to put it. Um, I'm just, I don't want to say I'm always, I'm not a greener pasture kind of person, but I'm always looking for really interesting opportunities to, to kind of move forward in my life or I just want to be like happy. <laughs> so do we all. Not saying that I wasn't particularly happy at Bioware. I think again they're incredibly talented people, and I had a, a great time working for the studio. But I just wasn't particularly fond of Edmonton myself, and uh, that's why I've just immediately came here to British Columbia around trees and mountains because it's it's more of what I'm looking for in my personal life. Okay, good answer. Let's see. I should name the games that you've worked on for the listeners: uh, Spider-Man: Edge of Time, uh, Star Wars: The Force Unleashed. The Ultimate Sith Edition, Lucidity, which that I want to ask you about. Oh, and sure. Indiana Jones, Staff of Kings, Army of Two, and more. Tell me about Lucidity. That that seems interesting. Lucidity, have you played it? I have not. It's, <gasps> X, it's Xbox and Live Arcade, and I, I just got an Xbox. Is it regular Xbox or 360? 360. Yeah, see, I just got a 360 like two months ago, so I'm kind of new to that game. Uh... So I've not gotten... I'm, I'm, look at this. I'm playing things like Star Ocean and Tenchu Stealth Assassins. Like, I'm into all the old, old school <laughs> games right now. I've got to go through all the old Fable 2, all the things that I've not had a chance to do. Um, right. And now now that I have the Xbox, I'm going to play some of these other games I haven't had a chance to. Yeah. Um, no, that was a really cool project. So, um, at the time, the president was Daryl Rodriguez, and... Um, I, I really liked him. I thought he was a great guy. And he started this initiative of old, older games and newer, smaller games. So there's this team called Team 3 that was created. And he, him and this guy named Matt, uh, Matt Manuel, they, uh, they initiated this, um, week long, um, oh, I can't remember what they called it, but essentially everyone in the studio got together into teams. Like they separated people into teams and they worked on it, their own project for a week. Um, and that's including finance and marketing and all these, everybody, dev people, marketing people, like everybody got together and got split into groups and we made products. We just made a game in a week. And it was 
really, really cool experience because um, A, it was a nice break. Uh, and, and B, you didn't have to do what you normally did. So for me, for example, I've been doing level design forever. Um, but I decided to be an audio designer. So, you know, the initial, the initial, uh, idea for the game and we all got together and kind of talked about it. And then, uh, you know, one guy went off and he kind of lead, leading it. And I brought in my, my huge MIDI, you know, uh, uh keyboard, you know, set, you know, source or not source version, but whatever the programs were. And I just kind of made little sound effects all week and I just had a blast. It was so fun. Uh, we, we basically just made a, um, uh, uh, um, oh, the game where you're two ships and there's a whirlwind in the middle and it's computer space. Uh, I can't help you with that one. We just kind of like had two ships. They had to like fly around, but every ship had two people. So you had one person on the drums and another person with, with the controller and the drum person made the actual ship go and the person with the controller shot and turned it. And there's a couple of other things too, but it was really cool. Like Vikings with Tribdis in the middle, or however you say that? You're talking like actual on-the-water ships, or like spaceships? Spaceships. Spaceships, yeah. okay. Because you yeah. said drums, I was like, okay. No, yeah, no, no, yeah, we actually, we, we got a couple of uh, rock band drums, and we kind of hooked that up as a, as a, a, a controller uh, to each of the ships, and it was like a competitive, cooperative game that we made, and we had a lot of fun, and you know, when you get up to 99 kills, like, we were having a blast. Um but from 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 this from this week where we all kind of showed our stuff, this game Lucidity came out from one of the teams, and it got greenlit to go kind of go forward and, and get made. So um, my my thing was I was actually on the Force Unleashed two at the time, and we were crunching, but I really wanted to help out because uh, the the team three guys did this really amazing job at making a very easy to use level editor. Where it was just basically you opened it up, you placed your blocks, you placed the you know, the enemy pathing, and you go go, and it just worked, like just worked. So um, I really wanted to just kind of mess around with it a bit and help the guys out making some bonus levels. So um, I just took a couple of nights out of the one of my weeks, churned out three different levels for them, and submitted them because you had to submit all like anybody was welcome to make bonus levels for the game. And, uh, submitted that and I got in three of my levels, the, for the, for their bonus stuff. So, um, that, that was kind of my contribution to it. Hmm. That sounds really fun. Yeah. And you know, the, it was really great because it was one of the very first original, original games to come out of LucasArts in a while. Right. Cause it's, it's mostly just been Star Wars, Indiana Jones for, mm-hmm. for a long time. So it was a really great initiative and it really, um, and it was really enthusiastic. Everybody who was involved in the project, and even people who weren't involved in the project, were really happy and positive, and and, and really supportive of the team putting it out. And uh, um, you know, I love the soundtrack. It's one of my favorite soundtracks, and you know, any game for, for me, anyways. Um, I think it's just beautiful. And uh, but then, you know, and that that was that was kind of the, that's the story of Lucidity. Wow. I'm glad to know that because that would make me, I think, play it a little differently knowing the backstory. I think I would appreciate it knowing everyone kind of tried something different for this game. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and the, like I said, the dev team was made from this team three guys who were involved in uh, the, the Monkey Island remixes, uh, the Made Lucidity, and uh, they were they were, they were were kind of like the team everybody kind of in a way wanted to be on because they were doing all the classic, you know, the classic LucasArts stuff that we're all jealous about, but then again, you know, we're upstairs working on like this, you know, badass Jedi game. So yeah, you can't complain. 
complaining, but, um, and there was, it was just a really, I, for me anyways, as an internal developer at, at, at LucasArts, I, I had a really fun time during, during those periods. I have to backtrack a little, uh, for level design and ask you, I guess, when you started playing games and as a, as a child or when, when did you start? Oh man. Uh, let's see. I, uh, well, when I was four, I learned how to play chess. Um, and that's kind of the first game I ever learned and the game that no one wants to seem to play with me. <laughs> because it's fun. fun. You know, because it's not made in Germany. <laughs> oh. It has a tactile feeling of all the pieces. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's not Catan or anything. Like, it's a classic game. And, um, but that's the, like, the very first game that I played. But, you know, like most guys around my age, and, you know, I just turned 30 recently, I grew up with games. I grew up with the industry. You know, the first console I ever played was, and I, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a dedicated Pong machine that had four different versions of Breakout and Pong and it had two paddles and that was it. Um, and, uh, and, and my, my grandma had it of all people and I don't know how my grandma had this thing, but <laughs> it was Pong. the coolest thing ever. And, uh, she actually got rid of it once in, um, a, a number of years ago at a, at a church charity auction. I was like, grandma, no! Oh. <laughs> my grandma uh, has face invaders. That's how I started playing. How funny is that? Oh, that's awesome. And uh, some sort of betting game, like a track horse thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like grandma. That's awesome. But you know, I you know, I started playing the original Atari twenty six hundred. My cousins owned one, and I got really into it. Uh, I never did. Uh, my my aunt also owned an Intellivision, uh, with, like poker and a couple of other really cool games. And I played my very first arcade game was Super Street Fighter two. Um, at the, w- at the time was Mike Smart and it was bought out by Max, which is a, like a convenience store chain here in Canada. Okay. But I put so many quarters into that game. It was unbelievable. And then my very first, no, no, I had an Atari Twix 2600 actually. Um, uh, I don't remember any games that I had for it other than like Pitfall and Miss Pac-Man. Um, cause Piss, Miss Pac, Piss, mm, Wow. <laughs> For like, Atari is way better than the original, just Pac-Man, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh. The music. Yeah. And then, uh, for Christmas, um, I can't remember when, but one, uh, one Christmas I got a, an NES. And, uh, just from there on, I've owned every system going forward, except for, except for Jaguar. I never owned a Jaguar. So how did you decide that lead level designer or level designer was the thing that you wanted to do? Most people kind of go, oh, I want to be a developer, I want to be whatever. Interesting choice. How did you decide that? Yeah, um, well, so when I was, uh, when I was graduating high school, I've, I've always been very somewhat forward focused in terms of what I want to do with my life. So, you know, I, I directed the school play in my last year of high school and I was in the band and I wanted to be a music teacher. And for a number of circumstances, I wasn't able to do any, I decided not to do any of that outside of after high school. And, uh, and in Thunder Bay, there's this, uh, program called the multimedia production program um that's done out of confederation college i think they're changing the name of it to like interactive media or something like that um but at, at the time you know i uh really wanted to go to university and i had gotten accepted 
to do a dual um, uh, degree in psychology and education. But, you know, I kind of also wanted to maybe play with computers the rest of my life. And, and, and hey, you know, maybe I can make video games. Like, coming, you know, this small little city in Thunder Bay, Ontario, you know, you're thinking, like, my, my God, like 15 years ago. Um, was that right? Um, 10 years ago. No, for, yeah, about 10, 15. Um, there's like no accessibility to games at all, right? Uh, like, it was just something that I'm like, well, if I do multimedia, I want to make video games, and that's what I chose to do. Cause I thought playing with computers the rest of my life was more interesting than teaching six, grade six to grade nine general education. Oh, but look how, how useful that music career came in lucidity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, I really enjoy hanging out with any of the audio guys I work with. They're always they're always a serious blast to party with. Um, but it's a side story. Um, but uh, when I so when I got to multimedia multimedia production program, I just focused all of my projects on games as much as I could. Uh, we had to make this resume in Flash MX or I can't remember. It was really really one of the older versions of ActionScript. And uh, so all I did was I kind of figured out how to make an isometric area of my bedroom and have me walk around to like the TV and to the computer. And then when you clicked on it, it popped up this little thing to tell you like what it was, but I just wanted to get a character to move around with some walking animations and make that kind of believable. And everything I did was about games and as much as I could. Um, and what I found was one of my strengths was working in 3d actually um, in 3d studio max. We had a couple of classes on how to model. And I picked that up really fast. And um, during my, my my years at college as well, I did a lot of studying in terms uh, for game theory or game game design, I should say, not particularly game theory. It's that's an area of mathematics, um, which I learned later. But you know, I picked up Ernest Adams' uh, uh, book on game design and whatever. Whenever I went to chapters, I found whatever books I could and read up about it as much as I could. Tried to get involved with the uh, the IGDA. Uh, created a small little student chat. Like, I was very much well trying to figure out how this would all work together. And um, uh, my program also had an internship. And uh, since, you know, my, 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 I found out my strength was doing modeling, I wouldn't say I'm an artist, but I can, you know, take a photograph of something and model it, no problem. Uh, cold called everywhere, like, ever possibly could, Vancouver at the time, or... Montreal, the States, and um, I was actually uh, really, uh, I was talking to the S2 games guys, because Savage is one of my favorite games of all time, like, in terms of that era of gaming, because um, I, I love that and Natural Selection. I really love those first-person shooter, real-time strategy, hybrid games. It's I really dig those. Um, and I was talking to them, but they're, they're in the States, and I was just graduating college, and it was kind of weird. And this company in, in Vancouver, uh, I start, I talk, I'm like, hi, I'm looking to make, a, to get an internship with your company. I'll work for free. And they're like, oh, you'll work for free? Yeah, go to work. Magic words. Yeah. So, um, a month before I was supposed to leave Thunder Bay, I, I was able to leave my, 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 uh, my, um, uh, for my internship a month early, and I did, uh, move to Vancouver and worked for a company called Factory One Games, working on an urban street soccer demo for their company. Um, 
and after a bit they they didn't uh um they didn't get any deals and you know the way startups work uh it just kind of uh just didn't uh didn't get any deals and um when I was kind of looking at what else I could do, because I started teaching also at the Arts Institute, started teaching game design and game production, because it was part of a company, and they were looking for instructors, and in college, I was taking learning theory classes, so I actually had to create a course curriculum, and, you know, I believe anybody who's a really good teacher can teach anything, so I kind of took that philosophy, and they really liked, they really liked me too, so it kind of worked out really well, but I really wanted to get more full time paying job in the industry and um uh i was talking to this 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 really really cool girl uh whose name's uh susan skrull she's uh she's in vancouver and um we were, we were talking once and it just kind of came up like why not level design because you know if i've got this modeling background and i'm really 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 into game design put those two things together well yeah you've got level design and that's where um i started to focus all my attention on onto that profession and got a contract with uh, Pseudo Interactive. They're no longer around, but they were in Toronto at the time on a release game called Full Auto and uh, made my move there. And I've been in level design ever since. That's a very, very long explanation. <laughs> no, that's, that's really good. I always wonder, and I have friends that are uh, just graduating and, and things like that and in design school. And I always wonder how you pick uh, the area that you're going to go into. So that, hey, long is good. Uh, you know, uh, again, I'm sorry if I'm boring the audience. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you're getting but, a little laggy, though. I want to see what I can do here for that. Oh, sure. Side, probably not me, but... Stop playing Warcraft. No, I know I should stop downloading that Warcraft installer, wink, wink. <laughs> that has happened to me before. I kid you not. Windows update. Somebody was Windows updating while we were recording. Like, why is it so laggy? Windows update. Now, uh, you were you were talking about how you were teaching, and I do have a question or two for you on that as well. Um, if the the game design talks you were having, uh, I believe there were a couple at conferences. I could be wrong. Were they peopled entirely by industry uh, personnel, or were there other people that just came to to hear you speak? And I guess what was that experience like? So coming, um, it's actually, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine today actually about this. Um, it, 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 for me, because I grew up in Thunder Bay and because I was so, it was so inaccessible for me to talk to anybody in history, I really just focused talking to students. Um, you know, like not just how to get in the industry, but just, you know, here's, here's design. Here is, this is, this is, this is what, this is why, you know, here's some interesting pointers that you might like to know. I, I, I've done a talk about um, 10 Principles of Good Design, which is actually uh, a riff off of, uh, oh, crap, I forgot the guy's name. Um, he's, an, he's a very famous industrial designer who worked for Braun for a long time, and, oh, it's going to get to me later. But I, I, and I kind of interpret them from industrial design to game design. And I'm supposed to be writing an article for Gamma Sutra about this, but I've been lazy as heck about it. But, um, you know, but I, I kind of want to like talk about those fundamentals and move that forward. And, um, you know, I've had, you know, industry people come and sit at, uh, my, my MIGS talk, which was basically just my notes about game design. Um, cause I was supposed to talk about too, but then I moved over to Activision. So I didn't feel that was appropriate anymore. So I, in terms of like, hey, these are all these things I've gathered, so I want to talk about design for a bit. 
which actually included the ten principles very uh, very briefly, and you know they kind of coming out of it. The the feedback was you know the industry people were like yeah you know that's we kind of knew that you know a couple of interesting points, but it was the students and again it was very specifically geared towards students. They had lots of questions, lots of feedback, um, and they were really kind of like thankful or excited that they heard the talk because it's not too often that you can find any kind of resource about what design is. I mean, you know, whether it's in a book, and I don't know about books these days. I know, uh, I know Ernest Adams, he recently came out with a book about mechanics. I haven't read it, but it's like, great, yes, something that really kind of dives into, like, what these systems are instead of just fluff about, like, what is an action game? Okay, if you play an action game, you generally know what an action game is, right? So, um... I think that's true of the whole industry. It's not something that's well documented or really explained. It's very small in a lot, in a sense and, um, very circular and kind of hard to, to get into in some ways. And once you're in, you're sort of in and it's like Fight Club. You don't talk about Fight Club. You know, and that's really true because I know a lot of people who won't say things because they're, they just don't want to put themselves out as, um, they, they don't. They don't want to be scared for their career. They want to. F- they want people to feel like they've got something that no one else has, and they're not willing to talk about it or, or explain it. And I think that's an incredibly valid thing to worry about. I mean, the instability of this industry is 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 is, is sad in a way. Um, you know, the big question of should we be unionized or not? I don't really know what that what the answer is. Um, I wish there was more stability and. There's more ways to guarantee that, um, that I would be employed by this company for however long. But at the same time, too, if I became lame or in terms of my work and became unproductive, I shouldn't be there either. So how would you get, if you're under a union, how would you kick somebody like that out? And I mean, I'm very like, I very much well, you know, will put up my hands and saying, Oh, hey, you know, I'm, not really happy or I'm not really doing good work or whatever my problems are. And I'll be very happy to move out of the situation or let somebody else do the job if, if they're better for it. Cause I just want to make a great game. But, um, uh, what was, I'm just trying to remember. You're talking about, um, your, dis- your discussions on game design and how, uh, there was no literary work that would tell people. So the new people were very excited. The students. I kind of got off track a little, um, I coming back to that, right. Um, it's it's being able to talk like, just wanting to like give students some information and possibly some other some information they might not have had before from a different perspective because I think everybody's perspective is valid. We all have different thoughts as to what makes good design, and you know, just kind of put it out there and just say like this is what I think, and it may be right, it may be wrong, but you know if you take a look at for example storytelling games, the difference between um, an obsidian game versus, you know, uh, uh, a Bioware to game to degrees to, um, an Arash game to, uh, a Call of Duty game. They're all different ways of telling a story. None of them are wrong. They're just very different. So it's nice to always get a different perspective and understanding. So, okay, well, you worked on this other game that I've never worked on before in terms of genre. Well, what are, what are your thoughts? And instead of like being objective and saying, well, that's wrong because my opinion is this, you know, you want to share that opinion. And that's kind of like what I really want to do is 
learn, but also at the same time too, hopefully contribute to the conversation. And what's so great about students is that because they're always consistently learning and absorbing, you know, I'll stand up there and I'll give them my opinion and my thoughts about what things are or my interpretations of the, the, the 10 good, uh, good design practices. They'll either take that or leave it or whatever it is, but you know, we'll, we'll have actually an interesting conversation to get the last questions. You know, sometimes they'll, you know, if I go to another fellow developer, although I really respect them, they'll just go, yeah. And they won't want to engage maybe because they think I'm wrong or they think it's blase or whatever the thing is. So, and I love that kind of feedback and that back and forth and the, you know, maybe my thoughts are wrong, but hey, let's investigate this. Um, and that's another reason why I really enjoy talking to students. Um, let me ask you, in my research, I came across something called Eruption and Dice Safari, which are board games. Uh, uh, d does this uh, relate to you in any way? And can you tell me about that? Do you? Uh, I'll tell you about that, but it's set another Christopher James. Ah, see, I wasn't sure if you made the board game and it was just a departure from your usual or if it was somebody else, so I thought I'd ask. Well, he's totally somebody else. And I, I, I looked it over. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, okay. Well, don't. Do we need to talk about it? Then it's not for you. It's not yours. We won't promote that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think I'm at my last question. Uh, what was your favorite game that you worked on and why? And is there anything secret that you designed into one of your games that you haven't or you could tell us about? Uh, okay. Um you know, it's it's a little bit of column A and a little column B in a way in terms of my favorite game. Um, the the game that I enjoyed working on was the Force Unleashed Two because um, we really, you know, we had a very pretty short time to 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 create that 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 product, but we were a really strong, tight team, and um, that comes from you know having to work with these same people over a couple of years, and it's kind of exactly. For industry, like these these group of guys that you respect each other enough that it everything just kind of works. You know what the product is. You're sitting there thinking of these really cool scenarios that you're trying to put the player in. You know the technology. You sit there. You have an idea. You 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 kind of quickly prototype it out. And um, uh, you know, I know that the game was short, but that was that was for production reasons, for for timeline reasons. And I, I felt like from the design perspective of what we were able to get through and, and, and create and with that team, it was, if anything, guilty pleasure and fun to do. Um, so that, that's that perspective. But in terms of like what game I'm probably most proud of would be Army of Two. Um, I, I had left around Alpha at the time for, for various reasons. Um, but whenever I talk to people about the games I've kind of worked on, Everyone always gets so excited about their their memories that they've had playing Army of Two with a friend of theirs, whether it's on the couch or over Xbox Live. And to me, that's that's what I go for. That that's why I make games is for people to have great memories, like the memories of that I have playing GoldenEye or Mario Party or uh, a Blade Runner on the NES or whatever games that you know I, I've played in my life. And I have those kind of memories with their friends as well and um we know people talk about like the the base jump in afghanistan which is something i'd worked on or um just just the excitement about that particular product it just it reminds me of like what i find 
so great about what we do as a game developer and in this medium. Um, in terms of like any particular secrets, mm-hmm. um, not not really actually. Um, I, I think it just comes down to like the the ESA is is so specific about these things, and internally there's so many like you don't really if you value career and your job, you don't really want to put anything like that in. Um, what I <laughs> <laughs> it's probably easier, I think, in the artistic end, where you can just kind of hide some little detail of your life that isn't going to, like, affect the game. It's just, like, a, a pretty piece of something, you know? Yeah. Oh, not, not particularly. There was a... There's a hallway of turrets on uh, the the Salvation... Uh, I think it's called... I think it's level 7, where all the uh, Imperial troops are coming into the ship on, on Force Unleashed 2. And I... This huge elaborate script that if you force script the turrets, you actually went into this first person shooter mode and you could turn them and shoot at the ships that are outside and the Star Destroyer. But I didn't have enough time to, to finish it and polish it and all of these things. And I really wasn't because it was just a fun little extra thing to do. Hmm. Um, but, uh, no, not, not really. Um, uh, the, uh, the, I would say like on, the, the 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 most technical and fun thing we worked on, unfortunately, too, was there's a the final tram ride from um, the the big gun which you fire and kill at a star destroyer. No, uh, yeah, um, is is this little tram that goes from a particular point all the way to the bridge, and um, it was just this really cool script that I made that had the whole world moving around you instead of you moving like. You, moving physically in the world and the very qualities of like the camera moving back and forth and the explosions and all of these little guys coming down. Um, I, it was such a blast to make. And that was, I would say like really it. If there was anything I would say is personally me in terms of what I enjoy in a game and enjoy making would be that. Scene. Hmm. That's just amazing to work on that. Really? I mean, <laughs> it's such an icon. <laughs> Moving on from that. Um, I know, right, though, because, like, it's so cool when you're sitting there and you're working on your level and all you hear behind you is... Whatever. Oh, nice. Okay, um, we're getting ready to close. Anything else you feel like you want to share before we close? Uh, No, I just, I hope I didn't make anybody go to sleep or anything. Um... (laughs) No, and if anyone got bored, I asked the questions I, I generally wanted to know, so thank you for indulging my curiosity. A big thank you to Chris James, and you can find him on Twitter at Signet and about me, Chris James. Um, also, good luck in your move, and I hope that the new place you end up is, is very good and you end up staying on that team and, and enjoying that for a long time. Really cool. And just for Signet, it's C... C-I-G-N-A-T, not S-Y-G. Like, that's not the ring, it's the little... It's the bird. It's a, what is it, swan? It's the swan, yeah. Maybe swan, cool. Story, but that's... <laughs> if you'd like to leave some feedback or keep up with the news, you can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, at Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast, or on iTunes. If you have any gray areas in your relationship or just need a new perspective, email your questions, advice, or suggestions to genesegray at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode.